Welcome to Cross Communities Podcast. We're glad you're here to listen today. We would love to connect with you today for listening to our podcast. Please fill out a connect card on our website at c3naz.net. You can also support the ministries of Cross Community by giving online on our website. We hope that today's message will strengthen your faith and help you to love God and people more. Pastor Jeff here, and I'm so sorry that this uh, sickness saga continues. Uh, Jackson is doing well and, in fact, was able to attend school on Friday, uh, but I have come down with something as well. So far, after two tests, it's not COVID, uh, but I felt I better stay away one more week. If you've been here both weeks and you're brand new, I'm so sorry that I haven't been able to meet you and welcome you. We're so glad that you're here and and attending our church with us. We do believe that you belong here. So today, I want you to hear a sermon from Dr. David Busick. Dr. Busick is one of our general superintendents, and he's going to share a message that I think will inspire you, but also if you're new and you don't know what the Church of the Nazarene is, it will help you to understand that better. And so without any further ado, and hopefully before I start coughing, uh, I want to introduce you to Dr. David Busick, and I hope you enjoy the message. I'll visit you again at the end of this message in order to send you out with blessing. Enjoy this time. Please take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to pick up the reading with verse 15, and I would invite you to stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together, thanks be to God. Maybe seated. Thank you. I've been a Nazarene all of my life. Camden Grace was just born and she probably will not be at church as soon as I was when I was born. I think I was back in church about 10 days old for my very first Sunday. I'm a Nazarene by birth. And by choice, those are two good things to have. But I have a confession to make to you because growing up in the Church of the Nazarene, in those earliest years, I was a little bit ashamed of the name. It just was such a long name. 
it didn't flow very well. It wasn't a cool name like Presbyterian or Methodist. Those, you know, those were easy to say. Now I had to say, I'm from the church of the Nazarene. And people would say, the church of the what? And so I walked around a little bit sheepish trying to describe the name of my church until the very first time I heard the origin of our name. Have you heard this story? So when those early Nazarene leaders more than 110 years ago were trying to determine what shall we call this new holiness movement that God is bringing together, they spent an all night of prayer. It was an all night of prayer with lay leaders and pastoral leaders alike. And the next morning they came back together and said, what shall we call ourselves? And it was there that J.P. Whitney, a lay person in the Church of the Nazarene, who also happened to be the president of a little school there called University of Southern California. He stood up in that group and he said, I think we should call ourselves the Church of the Nazarene. And here's why. And then he proceeded to say, all of you know that Jesus was born in a place called? No, it was Bethlehem. (laughs) Works every single time. I tricked you. No more tricks. No, he was born in a place called? And so how did he end up in Nazareth of all places? Because you see, in that day, in the first century, it was very common for people, whatever city or town they were born in, that's where you stayed your whole life. You did what your dad did before you and what his dad did before him, and and you stayed where you were born. That was just a custom. But something happened when Jesus was about two years old. An angel of the Lord came to his father, Joseph, and said, you got to get Jesus out of Bethlehem. King Herod is a jealous king. And he's heard that there's a king of the Jews in Bethlehem and he's coming to kill every two-year-old Jewish boy and younger in the town of Bethlehem. Get him out of here. And so Joseph is trying to decide, where's the best place I can take Jesus to protect him? Where's the one place that nobody would ever expect a Messiah to come from? I know where I'll take him. I'll take him to Nazareth. Because Nazareth was a little tiny, tiny little village and it was a place where nobody wanted to be from. In fact, there was a little saying in the first century that went something like this. Can anything good come from Nazareth? How'd you like to be from a town like that? Can anything good come from your town? Especially considering the fact that that's where you came from. But that's exactly where Mary and Joseph took Jesus. They took him to this forgotten town, this place where nobody wanted to be from, this place for outsiders, this place for people on the margins, the place for people who had fallen through the cracks. You know, the power brokers in Israel, they lived down in the south. They lived in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where the seat of government was. And, And there were lots of powerful and wealthy people down in the south. And Jesus did spend time with them. But do you know the place where Jesus spent the vast majority of his earthly ministry? He spent it in places like Nazareth, serving the forgotten and the lost and the least and the lonely. Those were the places that Jesus served. And that day, the church of the Nazarene made a decision. They said, this is the kind of church we want to be. We're not going to push wealthy people out. We're not going to push out affluent people and, and, and powerful people. Of course we're not. But everybody wants those kind of people in their churches. 
Let's be known as the church for the people from the place where nobody else wants to be from. Let's be known as the church of the Nazarene. And from that moment on, I raised my head proudly whenever I heard the name Church of the Nazarene because I knew our story. You know, I grew up in Bethany, Oklahoma. My dad worked there for the college for 25 years. And, and so when I went back to pastor Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, we celebrated our 100 year anniversary. And I wanted to, I wanted to find out what's the history of the early Nazarenes, especially in Oklahoma, because if I can figure out what it's like for the people in Oklahoma, then I can probably figure out what the Church of the Nazarene was like all across the U.S. and beyond. I found out a few things as I got ready for that celebration. I found out that the first pastor of Bethany First Church also happened to be the president of the college. They had 33 charter members. The total money raised that year was $54.30. And the pastor's salary was $13 annually. Pastors, can I get an amen to that? <laughs> some of you are saying some things haven't changed. <laughs> My point is this. These were not wealthy people. These were not powerful people. <clears throat> Here's a picture of C.B. Jernigan. C.B. Jernigan was the very first district superintendent of, uh, of Oklahoma District. At the time that he took over the district, they had three Nazarene churches, Pastor Tim. Within one year, Jernigan had planted 34 more Nazarene churches in one single year, and the membership rose to 910 people. Pretty good for 12 months. You probably heard the story about the Church of the Nazarene began with Phineas Brzee. Here's a picture of Brzee. Phineas Brzee. Don't you wish you had another firstborn son so you could name him Phineas? You probably know that he left a very comfortable and very prominent position in the Methodist Church to work with the poor in inner city Los Angeles, to work on Skid Row with the addicted and, and alcoholics. In one of his very first journal entries, he wrote, It had been my long-cherished desire to have a place in the heart of the city which could be made a center of holy fire where the gospel could be preached to the poor. That's the heart of our earliest Nazarene leader. And then I found out a little bit more about Oklahoma. Again, I'm, I'm tying all this in. This is Indiana, too. This next picture is a picture of the very first orphanage in the state of Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma, before the Church of the Nazarene began, was not a state. It was a territory. Oklahoma was one of the last states to come into the Union. Up until that point, by being a territory, it meant that that was a place where outlaws lived. They pushed a lot of Native Americans into, the, into that territory. It, it was just kind of a rough and hard place. Lots and lots of crime. Lots and lots of poverty. And, and so there was lots of orphans there. But Maddie Mallory opened the very first orphanage in the entire state of Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City, in 1897, using her inheritance money to buy the property and to start the orphanage. Guess what? Maddie Mallory was a Nazarene. The very first orphanage in the state of Oklahoma was started by a Nazarene. The next slide is a picture of Johnny Jernigan along with CB. CB was the district superintendent we talked about. Johnny was his wife. And she opened up the Beulah Heights Rescue Home for erring girls. And erring girls was code for unwed mothers. 
Its mission statement was very simple. For penitent, homeless, and friendless girls. That was their mission statement. The very first girl arrived at that Nazarene rescue mission. By 1912, 147 babies had been born in that Nazarene rescue home. Now, my brother and sister, that was over 100 years ago. Can you even imagine the scandal? What are these Nazarenes doing helping unwed mothers and bringing in kids who don't have dads? Very first, one of my favorite pictures in all of Nazarene archives is the next one. Here's a picture of, uh, of Johnny with a deaconess. This is the Nazarene deaconess with her. And they have one, two, three, four, five, six babies in a wheelbarrow. They're just wheelbarrowing kids around. They, 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 that's how many kids they had there. When Johnny's health began to fail in 1916, they had to close that home. And they turned most of those girls toward the Deaconess home in Oklahoma City, which happened to also be the hospital, Deaconess Hospital, where I was born. By the time they shut its doors, buckle your seatbelts, 700 girls had lived in that home. What's it mean to be a Nazarene? These are our roots. Missional, forward-thinking churches passionate about reaching lost and broken people. Holiness communities with burning desires to see transformed hearts and lives. And ministries of mercy to Nazareth people. Orphan children, unwed mothers, addicted folks who were stuck and had nowhere else to go. These are the roots of the Church of the Nazarene. Can I get an amen to that? That's... Which brings me to this gospel passage that we just read. Because this particular passage in Matthew was very important to those early Nazarene leaders. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Did you know this is the first time in the entire New Testament that the word church is used? It's, it's actually two Greek words put together. Look at this slide. The first Greek word is ek. Someone say ek. Ek means to come out of. And klesia means called ones and sent ones. So when you put them together, ecclesia or ecclesia, what it means is we have been set apart as the people of God, set apart from the world, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then filled with the Holy Spirit, not to sit around, hold hands and sing kumbaya, but then to be empowered by the Spirit to be sent back out into the world as Christ ambassadors. Called out ones, filled with the Holy Spirit, sent back out into the world as Christ ambassadors. This is the very first time church is used. And guess who named us that? Jesus. Jesus is the first one to call us the called out sent ones. See, the church has never been about buildings. There's been a little bit of a, 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 an urban myth or legend about what happened with the pandemic. I heard so many people say the church has been closed. Listen, buildings may have been closed, but the church has never been closed. Because the church is not a building. The church is a people. And so wherever you are, that's where the church is. When you're driving into the Walmart parking lot, the church is there. When you're walking through your school hallways, the church is there. When, when you're being cut off in traffic and you want to honk your horn, the church wants to honk their horn. 
Wherever you are, that's where the church is because the church is a people. You are the ecclesia. You are the ones who have been called out by God, filled with this Holy Spirit, and now sent back into the world as ambassadors to Jesus Christ. Turn to your neighbor and just, just say to them, we are the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell. That's the next phrase. Did you know the word hell is also a Greek word? It's probably one you're more familiar with. It's the word Hades. And there's no way for me to fully describe to you the terror of first century people when they heard the word Hades. Because Hades was the ancient people's way of talking not only about the place of death, but also about the powers of death that were at work in the world. It was the greatest fear of people in the ancient world. So they believed hell was a real place. They also believed that hell was about the powers of death that had been unleashed in the world. And so if God is a God of life, which God is, then the powers of hell in the world would oppose the life of God by creating death. And if God is a God of love, which God is, then hell would begin to oppose the love of God by bringing fear. And if God is a God of freedom, which God is, then hell, the gates of hell in the world, represent the powers of death that would try to oppress and bind up people and put them in chains. See, hell is a real place. But hell is also about the powers of destruction that would ravage and destroy everything that God has made beautiful and good. And guess what hell loves to destroy the people that God loves. I will build my church and the gates of hell, the powers of hell will not prevail against it. Now I have a confession to make to you for years. I had in my mind a certain picture of what, what this particular part was about. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And my image was, was that here we were, we were this little, tiny, weak, powerless, puny church. This anemic little, wimpy church. And that the powers of hell, here comes the devil, the big bully on the block, and he comes over to this weak, powerless, puny church, and he starts to beat on the church and hammer on the church and try to choke out the church. And the church says, oh no, please don't hurt us. Please don't hurt us. Jesus, help us, Jesus. And here comes our powerful, victorious Jesus. And he comes, he takes the big bully on the block. He overcomes that bully, throws him out, and he saves the church. That's what I had in my mind is the image, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. But then one day I got to thinking about the words that Jesus actually used. And it, and it dawned on me that gates are not weapons. Gates are for protection. I'm a little slow. It takes me a while to get caught up on all of this. But gates are not weapons. You don't pick up a gate and pick it up and say, you know, I'm going to hit you with my gate. When's the last time you saw a war movie and you, and you heard a general say to the lieutenant, okay, they pushed me far enough. We're bringing out the big guns. Go get the gates. <laughs> We're bringing in the gates. 
No, you never hear that. Why? Because gates are not weapons. Gates are for protecting. You don't use a gate to attack. So you could say this. Gates are a defensive measure. They're not an offensive measure. Now, I don't have to tell people in Indiana about football. I know you're basketball mainly, but uh, let's talk about American football for a minute. Praise the Lord. It's just kind of nice not to have to talk about football as soccer. So bear with me for a minute. I played football in my younger years. I played on the side called the offense. And in, in the simplest of terms, the offense's job is to try to push and advance the ball down the field and score a touchdown on the opposing team's defense. Okay? That's as basic as it gets. So the job of the offense is aggressive. The job of the offense is attacking. The job of the offense is advancing and pushing. The job of the defense, on the other hand, is to entrench. The job of the defense is to kind of hold back and push back. Offense, attack, advance, push, defense, entrench, hold back, stop. Are you still with me? Take a look at this next picture. In the ancient world, every single city had a wall. Because if you didn't have a wall, you didn't have a city for very long. Because your, you know, your enemies would come in, they would attack your city and destroy it. So your walls were protection. And there was two ways that you could attack an ancient city. You could either go over the wall, which is a really bad idea. Because the walls were high, they were thick, they were strong. You had people sitting on top of the wall, they were pouring hot oil on you, dropping heavy things on you, rocks and stones, shooting you with bows and arrows. You didn't want to be the first hundred guys over the wall. In fact, if your general said to you, hey, you go first, you know what he thought of you. (laughs) But there was another way to attack a city. It was to find the most vulnerable part in the city wall. And guess where that was? Now you're catching on. It was the gates. And so you attacked the city not by climbing a wall. You focused on the weakest part of the wall, which was the gates. Now remember, gates are defensive. Gates are closed. Gates are locked. Gates protect. Gates keep people out. Who is Jesus saying has the gates? Now, I already tricked you on that Bethlehem thing, so I know you don't trust me. This is not a trick question. Who has the gates? Hell has the gates. So who is Jesus saying is playing defense here? Hell. It's not the little tiny puny anemic church that hell's beating up on. Jesus has actually flipped it completely around. And he's saying that the church is the one on offense and hell's the one that's terrified. The church is the one pushing forward and attacking the gates and the gates are trying to keep them back. And Jesus is giving us an image here of the church on offense, attacking hell, driving back its gates and hell not surviving the assault. And I missed this point for so long, I can't believe it took me this long. But that we, the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, we're the ones on offense. We're not playing defense. 
We're not the weak, puny, anemic church just begging for Jesus to come and protect us. But that the powers of death and the powers of hell and the grave will eventually crumble under the forward advance of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I ask myself this question. Why is this such a new image for us? Why is it taking me? Let's just put me in it. Why is it taking me so long to figure this out? It's because in so much of our teaching on spiritual warfare, we always have the idea of the enemy attacking us. And therefore, what we do is we measure spiritual victory in spiritual warfare and the Christian life as our ability to resist our ability to resist attack and to resist temptation. So if we don't steal, if we don't lie, if we don't cheat on our taxes, we don't commit adultery, and we generally just avoid doing bad things and going bad places, we call that success. And we call that holy living. And brother and sister, there's some truth to that. There should be things about our ethics that are different when we follow Christ. There should be things about us of things we no longer say and things we no longer do and places we no longer go. I get all of that. But folks, have you ever noticed that you can resist all of that bad stuff and not do a lot of bad things and still be just a spiritually dry and barren and without joy and no more like Jesus after the attack than you were before the attack. I mean, some of the meanest people I've known in the church are people who didn't do bad things. Are you with me? See, part of what this means for us, Jesus is trying to get this into our minds, that advancing the mission of God doesn't just mean we're given the ability to avoid bad stuff. We are given the power to do what's right. And we are given the power to do God's work in the world. And the way we do it is not by just entrenching and holding fast. It's by advancing the light and pushing back the darkness. The church is on offense. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're on offense. This is an easy crowd to preach to, Tim. I like this crowd. Where have you been all my life? Now, here's an important question. I'm not going to belabor this point, but I think, I think we got to ask ourselves the question, how? How is the church supposed to be then pushing ahead? How is the church to be on offense? How are we to advance going forward? Well, I think it's all held here in what Jesus said. It's all right here in this passage when he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, I don't know everything that Jesus means by the keys that we could talk about that for a long, long time. But I know one thing, if he's talking about the keys of the kingdom, he's talking about something that's not incidental. That's not trivial. He's talking about something that is vital to unleashing the activity of heaven on earth. Keys get you into places you couldn't get prior to that. Keys open, locked and closed doors. Jesus said, I will give you the keys. The second thing he said is this. He's talking about the church taking initiative with the absolute assurance that heaven is on our side. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Jesus then said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. 
That is not what I thought he was going to say. I thought he was going to say the opposite of that. I thought he was going to say whatever is bound in heaven will be bound on earth. And then he said whatever is loosed in heaven will be loosed on earth. I didn't think he'd say that either. I thought all the activity had to start from heaven. I mean, that's where the power is from. We all know that. But Jesus completely, again, he turns it all upside down and he says, if you unleash it on earth, it's going to be unleashed in heaven. If you bind it up on earth, it's going to be bound up in heaven. What's he talking about there? The keys of the kingdom is the authority to be charging forward with what we already know to be God's mission in the world. Now, here's what I know after having pastored for 18 years. I pastored three churches in 18 years time. And I can tell you, I had a lot of people come to my office and they would say to me things like this. Pastor, I just feel so weak right now. In my Christian life, I'm discouraged all the time. I'm full of anxiety. I just I feel like I'm just given to temptation. I feel powerless and I don't know what to do about it. I would always ask them two questions. The first question I'd ask is, is there any known sin in your life? Are you being disobedient to God in any way? Is God asking you to do anything where you're resisting and holding back? Sometimes they would say yes, and we would offer a prayer of repentance and ask God to help them. But very often they would say, no, pastor, I, I, don't, I can't think of anything I'm not doing that God's asked me to do. Well, then I would ask them the second question. What are you doing? To push back the gates of hell. In your own personal life, what are you doing to advance the mission of God? Because it dawned on me pretty early on, there's not a lot of power required. There's not a lot of spiritual power required for you to stay in your comfort zone. I mean, how much power does it take from God for you to get up in the morning, go to work, or eat your oatmeal, go to work, come home, walk the dog, eat some dinner, watch ESPN... And go to bed. Doesn't, that, doesn't the whole world do that? Doesn't take you much power to do that. But here's where real power is needed. You need Holy Spirit power when you're breaking out of places where you're not comfortable. And you're starting to go to places where you say, if God doesn't show up in this place and this time, I'm in so much trouble. I am so out of my comfort zone right now. I am so above my head. I'm in so much deep water. Here's what I think is happening here. Jesus is trying to say, I've already told you what to do. I've already given you my spirit. And now, enabled by the spirit, I want you to start acting in obedience to what I've called you to do. And so you go start pushing back the gates of hell. You start unbinding some of the people that, that hell has bound up by sin's chains. You start helping unbind them. And when we see you unbinding them, all of a sudden heaven's going to go, now they need our power. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're totally out of their comfort zone now. Now they're doing kingdom stuff, so power comes from heaven and helps you. The unleashing power of heaven comes when we start unleashing people on earth the way Jesus commanded us to do. Amen? You start binding up broken people who have been broken by sin's chains and broken by sin's addictions. And all of a sudden, power from heaven is going to come. Because power is needed when you're pushing back the gates of hell. The church of the Nazarene has always been about pushing back the gates of hell and going into Nazareth places. We're about going into the most anguished, 
places of society and announcing the love of God and the power of transforming grace and saying, God has not left you and we stand with you. And when we do, here's what Jesus said. The gates of hell don't stand a chance. And that was the vision of those early Nazarenes. They were so much on offense. Did they have their hang-ups? Of course they did. It's called being a human being. But listen, they weren't sitting down in a foxhole holding hands and singing Kumbaya either. They weren't waiting for the enemy to attack them. They charged the gates of hell. And they went where no one else was willing to go. And they did what nobody else was willing to do. This is our story. Now I'm going to just backtrack for a second. The last two and a half years have been hard on the whole world. Midst of this pandemic and you throw in all of the other stuff and we're just talking about the U.S. We're talking about, you know, political unrest. We're talking about racial unrest. It, it, pastors may not say this to you, but this has been the hardest two and a half to three years of pastoring since I've understood pastoring. And in the midst of this hard, hard time, there's people out there, good people, people who love the church and people who love the Lord, but they're trying to distract us from our roots. And here's what they're saying. They're saying, oh, this is, this is, these are perilous times. These are dangerous times. This is, this is a time we should be retreating. We should be digging in. We, should, we shouldn't be charging anything. We shouldn't be pushing anything back. We ought to be digging in and trying to protect our stuff. And their mode of ministry is fear and frustration. And their mode of church is protecting and defense and entrenching. But folks, it's impossible to be the church and be on defense. What does it mean to be on? We start homes. For unwed mothers. We take care of orphans. We, we start after school programs for kids who have nowhere to go. We provide food for the poor. We, we look out for single mothers. We come alongside people in recovery. We take the gospel, the holiness gospel to the nations. This is what Nazarenes do. Nazarenes are on offense. But so many churches... They're in a maintenance mindset, and their main mission is protection. Now, some of you have heard the name Steve Jobs before. Steve Jobs, in 1983, had this young upstart company, a little thing called Apple. And he was looking for somebody to kind of help with the day-to-day operations so he could keep the vision part going, and he made a bold move. He asked Pepsi executive John Scully to a lunch. And at that lunch, Steve Jobs looked across the table at Pepsi executives, John Scully, and he said to him, John, you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? And I thought to myself, man, I wish I'd have thought of that. That's Steve Jobs. But then I got to thinking about it. Change the world? What's he talking about? And he's talking about iPads. I like my iPad. Don't take my iPad away from me. But this isn't going to change the world. You want to hear Jesus' challenge? Let me give it to you in Jesus' kind of code words. 
Do you want to spend the rest of your life managing the minutiae and maintaining the machinery of church? Or do you want a chance to change eternity? I love the words of C.T. Studd. Now, C.T. Studd, he wasn't a Nazarene, but he should have been. And this is what C.T. Studd said back about the time the church of the Nazarene got started. He said, there are some people who want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Tim, I want to go on record. Swid District needs more studs. Amen. Now I'm I'm playing, I'm teasing, you know that. But let me let me say something that's not teasing. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? God wants to send us to dangerous places to do difficult things. He wants to send us to Nazareth. They got all of heaven to chill. Bobby was 10 years old when his father was tragically killed. And it left Bobby and his four younger brothers and sisters homeless. And when social services found Bobby at 10 and those four little kids... They were actually living in a farmer's haystack in western Nebraska, surviving on whatever fell off of the trucks. They were homeless. They had no parents. They were starving to death. Social services took those five little kids and they put Bobby into the foster care system. From the age of 10 to the age of 18, Bobby was in nine different foster care homes. If you're doing the math on that, that means he was never in the same school for a year. He was never in the same home for a year. And to make matters worse, if they could possibly be made worse, Bobby, when he was just a baby, contracted polio. He's one of the very first babies in the state of Nebraska to be in an iron lung. For the rest of his life, Bobby walked, stooped over. He walked with a little bit of a limp. He, he had a little bit of a speech impediment. Sometimes he was hard to understand. Bobby was falling through the cracks. He was failing school. He had no, no home support. He had no self-esteem. He didn't even graduate from high school. Bobby was a Nazareth kid. But when Bobby was 17 years old, there was a Nazarene family in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, and they went to the, the orphanage in the foster care system and they said, we want you to give us your hardest case. We don't want the six-month-old cute baby that everybody wants, you know, oh, look how cute they are. We want the hardest one you've got. And they said, we don't even have to guess who that is. You can have Bobby. At 17, that Nazarene couple took Bobby into their home. And for the very first time in Bobby's life, He heard the good news of Jesus. And Bobby said, if this is true, this is the best news I've ever heard. And he gave his heart completely to Christ. 
When Bobby turned 18, he got out of the foster care system. He came back to that little Nazarene church of about 50 people in, Naz- in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. They loved on him. They discipled him. He met a young woman there. They fell in love. And Bobby felt called to be a pastor. He started applying at every Nazarene school that he could think of in the country. Every single one of them sent him a rejection letter. They said, Bobby, you can't be a preacher. You can't speak. You don't have your high school education. You know, we love you, but you can't come and be a preacher. Instead of getting angry at the church, Bobby said to his now young wife, he said, there's got to be a place somewhere in the church where we can serve God in this church of the Nazarene that we love. And they heard about a school. It was in Bethany, Oklahoma. At the time, it was known as Bethany Nazarene College. And he didn't go there to go to school. He went because he heard they had an opening in the maintenance department. And Bobby said, I might not be able to preach, but I can build stuff. I can work hard. And so Bobby moved his young wife and they moved to Bethany, Oklahoma. And for the next several decades, he gave his heart to Bethany Nazarene College. But that was just his day job. You want to know what his real vocation was? Bobby loved telling people about Jesus. And he loved discipling people. Bobby had such an intimacy with Jesus that there would be people with PhDs and diplomas all over their walls. They'd come to Bobby who didn't have a high school education. They'd say, Bobby, help me to get closer to Jesus. He had an intimacy that very few people had ever seen before. And he had influenced so many people's lives that when Bobby died... At the age of 50, that Nazarene church was filled to capacity, so much so that people were out in the lobbies, the foyers, and streaming into the parking lot. And for hours that day of Bobby's funeral, people literally walked by and told story after story after story to Bobby's family. Let me tell you how Jesus changed my life through Bobby's life. And the reason that story is so important to me is because Bobby was my dad. Bobby was my father. And now you know why I love the Church of the Nazarene so much. Because there was a Nazarene family who said, give me the worst kids you've got. Give us the Nazareth kid. And let us take him into our home. And the love they gave and the discipleship that happened changed the trajectory of my entire family's life. Today, my three children are Nazarenes and walk with the Lord because there was a Nazarene family in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, who took a Nazareth kid in. Now, let me say this to you in closing. We don't need Nazarenes playing it safe. These are perilous times. These are hard, hard times. The last thing we need to do is to be a church on defense. The last thing we need to do is to be a church who says we just got to protect our stuff. This is a time for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be advancing against the gates of hell, and to take Jesus up on his promise to say the gates of hell will not prevail against you. We need more daring Nazarenes with daring plans. We need more Nazarenes who are more afraid of eternal regret than they are of some temporary failures. I would much rather fail in the kingdom of God trying to advance the kingdom than trying to play it safe. We are on offense. You are the church. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. 
what an incredible message. What an incredible reminder. Church, today, we are on offense. That's why we at Cross Community Church have a mission statement that reads, we are committed to helping people. And we are committed to helping people find and follow Jesus. And we are committed to helping people find and follow Jesus by seeking and serving others. That is a mission statement of a church that's on offense. So if you're ready to play offense and you're ready to get out there, then I want to invite you to stand right now, right where you are, I want to send you out with inspiration and blessing. I pray today, my friends, that we would no longer hide and retreat and play defense, but that we would lean in to the power that Jesus wants to give us through the Holy Spirit to go out and to seek and serve others, to help them find this Jesus who has done so much for us. May the Holy Spirit inspire you, bless you and keep you and enable you to live as a Christian on offense. Never be afraid of what evil might do. We serve the one who is greater. And I send you out in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God bless you. Have a great week. I should be there with you next week, and I hope to greet you. If you've joined us online, thanks for being a part of our service today. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you for tuning in to Cross Communities Podcast. We hope you will join us next week.